Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're on at noon today. Kind of nice to be on this early, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong button. Look at that. I'm already pushing the wrong buttons. Let me get the other thing off. There we go. See, I'm already pushing the wrong buttons. Too early for me. Anyway, I'm glad to be on, and I hope you're glad to be here because we got a great show for you. Um, Carl Abramson, who has written a book about Anton LaVey, the uh, founder of the Church of Satan, is going to be with us shortly. And I'm looking so forward to this interview. Um, you can't believe how much I'm looking for this interview. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the founder of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 35 strong up and down the state of California. And uh, we have somebody just almost in every county. And if we don't, we'll uh, move somebody over from another county to come and visit you. Okay. If you think you have a paranormal need, we do not charge for services. We're here simply to help and educate. So uh, there you have that. Uh, we also have people based in... Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and Hawaii. So we got some pretty good coverage out there. If you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, there's a little ghost down in the right-hand corner who has a Sherlock Holmes hat on, <clears throat> excuse me, along with a magnifying glass. And he's down there in the corner. That's our mascot. You click on that, you can subscribe. We have over 250 videos there of shows that we've done on varying topics. And I think there's something, a little something for everybody there. Anyway, getting to today's show. I'm glad you guys are here. It's good to see you all. I'm looking at the chat room right now. Let me click on this bad boy here. And hello, Jerry Bazer's with us. Okay. So let me get back in. So anyway, uh, this is a unique show. Um, you know, there's been a lot said about um, Anton LaVey. And I know there's a lot of TV specials and all that. So maybe this show, maybe Coral can help us kind of get around some of that and see the guy behind all the TV specials, behind all that stuff. All right. So without further ado, let me bring Coral in. Hello, Hi, sir. how are you? Good, how are you? Fine, thank you. Tell us about you, sir. <clears throat> well, I'm um, a Swedish uh, person, and uh, originally I began as a journalist, and I found myself writing more and more and more about topics and people that, that really interested me. Uh, usually people are producing pretty rare uh, experimental art, but also people involved in uh, fringe philosophy and occultism and many, many interesting things. And uh, I just stuck with it. You know, I never uh, went into the uh, daily grind of being in a newspaper in a magazine environment. I stayed on the freelance path and uh, gradually could indulge more and more in, right. in hanging out with interesting people and writing about them. So that's that's the very, very condensed story of who I am. <laughs> so I, I write a lot. I write books, uh, fiction and books about things. I also make documentary films about people. And um, uh, yeah, just enjoy being creative. In a lot of ways, I agree with you. I mean, I, I went the newspaper route and it's limiting. You know, you can only do you know what you're assigned or if, if you get approval to do stuff. Freelancing is so much easier. It's a breath of fresh air because you you know you you're out in the community and you can come across these stories and then you can pitch them and you you, you know you might come across an editor that's really into it and then you can write whatever you want, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, how did you get to know Mr. Levey? Um, it's it's a wonderful story and and one obviously that has obsessed me uh, all throughout my life up to this point where I'm talking to you. You know, it's it everything begins basically in the teenage years when you're hungry, you want to get to I don't know uh, attract stuff and study stuff that helps you individuate as a young person. And uh, I was no different, and I was very you know interested in uh, weird culture, weird people, occultism. Um, also, again, the the more the fringe fringier elements like Satanism, for instance, you know, there was no way that you could um, not find Lave's book. It was readily available even in Sweden. You know, it's a paperback, 
I'm talking about the Satanic Bible. You right. know, it's never been out of print since 1969. So that was available even in my, um, you know, teenage Stockholm, Sweden. And I got that and I found a huge resonance with it because it wasn't like the more technical or historical occultism which can be kind of dusty arcane um working with the symbols uh, for its own sake to be you know mysterious and attractive but lavey was so to the point you know uh, so i really liked that i really i got into it uh, you know studying it and trying things out um at the same time i also loved american trash culture you know b movies horror movies exploitation movies uh it was a huge part of my life and i i uh, had a teenage crush on on uh, jane mansfield um <laughs> i don't know why but you know most most people do um <laughs> and and she was just so wonderful and then it blew my mind when i figured out that she had actually been a member of the church of satan you know really? they had had allegedly uh, a little fling and and uh, anyway they were both very very pr savvy people it was like dynamite when they got together mm -hmm. and and uh, you know the paparazzi went went crazy and they of course they used that to their own advantage but this kind of you know merger of two things that i loved was like a meltdown in my system and so when it came to that time when you know you're young you start a band and you, you know try things out so i had a band called white stains and the first record we made was a tribute to not only Jane Mansfield, but also to LaVey and to their relationship. So that came out. It was a song called Sweet Jane, just like the uh, Lou Reed song. Um, and my friend Genesis Peorage, uh, with whom I worked at this time in the mid 80s, mm -hmm. he said that, you know, you should send this record to LaVey. I'm sure he would find it amusing. And uh, I said, well, you know, why not? So I did because Genesis had the address mm -hmm. and and lo and behold, I got a letter back from Anton LaVey and I was just like, I don't know. I can't remember, you know, how mind blown I was not only acknowledging uh, receipt and, and, you know, uh, thanks for the, the, you know, initiative and stuff. But he also made me a member of the Church of Satan. That was kind of his thing is shtick you know uh, people that he found interesting sort of he just said hey now you're a member <laughs> and it was it worked you know because because um, here we are again so many decades later talking about him mm -hmm. so one thing led to another uh, this was in 1988 and in 1989 i had uh, sort of gathered up enough money to go on my very first u.s trip and I went to see him and Blanche Barton in the Black House, which was this beautiful old uh, Victorian painted lady, painted black, of course, uh, on California Street. Mm -hmm. And um, that became uh, the first of uh, many times that I visited there and hung out. And we watched a lot of movies, listened to him playing music on his great synthesizer park and went out to dinner and just, you know, hung out. It was a very friendly and supportive atmosphere uh, that for me opened up not only the realization that my I had the power to enter these environments that I up until then had only fantasized about, but mm -hmm. it was also that I was also welcomed back. So I had something to bring to the table. At the time, I didn't really uh, you know figure out what it was, but of course I was overjoyed and proud and very happy. And the main thing, super inspired. And that's in, that inspiration is still with me today. And that's one of the reasons why I made, you know, the documentary film that then turned into this book that we're talking about. You know, you see a lot of things on TV, you know, different shows and stuff. How close were those other those older documentaries on him to what the actual truth is? Uh well, if you um if we begin in the beginning, there was a documentary made by a film uh, college uh, guy called Ray Laurent uh, called Satanis that came out in 1969. So that was very early. That was like Church of Satan heyday in a way, okay. uh, the first phase. Um, and it's it's kind of primitive, but but I like it a lot. It's, it has um, interviews with members, with LaVey, of course, and, mm -hmm. and other people, you know, in their environment. So it's very it's filled with signal, as as you say these days. It's like there's no fluff. It's to the point, and it's a very clear, um, you know, transmission of their philosophy in a way. So that one I like. And then, of course, he this during this first phase, which is basically 1966 to 1976 or mid 70s, he was on a lot of talk shows. He did a lot of radio, uh, lots of uh, men's magazines, and, you know, some more substantial than others. But that was, you know, his thing to get 
as much attention as possible. So, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't perhaps call those, um, they are documents, but not necessarily um, uh, documentaries. Uh -huh. and, and then of course you have things after his death, Lave died in 97, and then it's almost like it's free range. You know, you can, you know, claim anything or you can have this thing where you, uh, uh, you know, he did, allegedly did this or that, you know. And, and that kind of post-mortem fame or celebrity uh, has a price. And that is that people can claim things. And, and if you don't have an, you know, an army of, of uh, attorneys you know, to, to fight and sort of counterattack, then, right. then what can you do? I'm thinking specifically of something like um, American Horror Story, in right. which, uh, you know, I can't even remember what that season was called, but you know what I mean. He was in right. that show, you know, and it was so so kitschy i i was it was i was cringing <laughs> and but what i mean is that that's that's also the price you have to pay to have this celebrity after you're dead you know you will be in the uh, public sphere uh, mm -hmm. and uh, i think that lave would actually appreciate it not maybe the nuances of the so-called performance here but the fact that he's still present in i would say mainstream culture because this guy you know ryan murphy and american horror story it's mainstream culture and here is this person with the bald head and the goatee and this sort of you know demonic look i think lave would have appreciated it actually even though i found it cringeworthy right <laughs> but you know so and again there are other uh, you know um uh, occurrences that have been over the years i'm thinking of uh even back to uh, californication you know, mm -hmm. this is this a couple of episodes where where um, the protagonist's daughter, you know, flaunts a copy of the Satanic Bible and stuff like that, and it's amazing. You know, so it's there. I would say specifically in the American uh, psyche or the American pop culture, he's never left, and and the book book is still in print, and all his books are in print. And this uh, my documentary that came out in 2019, that was one of two documentaries that came out about him at about the same time. So that in itself is pretty amazing. Um, perhaps there's some kind of resurgence going on. I don't know. Uh, it's just um, he doesn't seem to want to leave <laughs> the public arena. That's how I see it. How much of the stuff, you know, is Hollywood really, like you say, you know, trumped up stuff. Like, you know, you, when you think of the Church of Satan, the first thing that comes to mind is sacrifices and all this stuff going on. How much of that actually occurred if it, if it did or didn't? Well, no, it, it did not. And I'm, I'm just uh, um, speaking from my own experience and, and specifically about the, the Church of Satan, which was the group that he founded and led uh, up until his death, you know. And it was so, the philosophy is basically common sense, you know, but also uh, what I call an altruistic egotism. You cannot really be good to anyone else before you're good to yourself, you know. So let's begin with egotism and then you can be altruistic if you feel like it. And then, you know, what when people hear about the philosophy, they say that, wow, this sounds like a whole lot of common sense. Why did he have to call it Satan? You know, he didn't believe in Satan. It was just a symbol. Uh, but he had been very interested in you know, what you would call, and what we all call, you know, paranormal, paranormal uh, phenomena, occultism. Uh, he, I would say, was a believer, or he had an open mind, but he also, uh, because of his curiosity, and we're talking now back to the 50s when he was a young man, oh. way before Church of Satan, he was interested, and he was studying, and he was, you know, exploring things, and he became a little bit of a... Um, a debunker in the same way that Houdini was a debunker and, you know, James Randi and these sort of people who wrote about, you know, uh, it's only tricks, it's only stage magic, whatever. I think that LaVey, you know, because he had worked on a circus, he had worked on a sideshow. So he mm -hmm. knew about those aspects of, let's call it carny magic or right. um, uh, that kind of thing. But he also had an open mind in the sense he acknowledged that there was kind of a dark force in nature that you could tap into and you can, well, I guess that sorts uh, is filed under the umbrella of occultism in a way. Sure. But he also had um, 
a career thing. He loved these things. He loved being uh, this colorful character with a larger than life life. And, right. and uh, he wanted to make a career out of it. And that he did specifically with the creation of the Church of Satan. Um, and in the Satanic Bible, which is the, the Bible of this group uh, mm -hmm. and this philosophy, um, it is uh, absolutely stated uh, that it's a symbol. Satan is a symbol. It's not an anthropomorphic beast, uh, like some Christian fantasy thing. Okay. There are no sacrifices. Uh, it's all about pleasure and indulgence, something hedonistic, uh, Epicurean, um, about uh, leading as good a life as is possible, but not necessarily at the cost of anyone else. Because mm -hmm. uh, Satanists are de facto quite selfish people, or I should add, they should be, uh, and and uh, just you know stick to the regimen of enjoying life. And in that thing, there's no um, point in wasting um, uh, time or energy on people who simply will never understand. So that was when he entered into the second phase mm -hmm. uh, after the first decade. He had grown a little bit tired, I think of all the exposure and having to explain the same things over and over and over again mm -hmm. and that's why he, people looked at him as becoming more and more reclusive and and uh, my experiences with him they were during the last decade when he was uh, kind of reclusive and also in failing health and stuff so there were reasons for that too um but to return to your question, you know, sacrifice and these first uh, impressions that people have, there's nothing of that stuff. It's just a very, um, I call the philosophy uh, pop Nietzsche, you know, mm -hmm. the philosophy of will stemming from Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and, you know, into Crowley and, and some more occultly inclined people. It's about finding your will and doing your will and making sure you, you lead a hell of a good life. Well, I was also thinking while you were talking to, it only takes a few people in an organization to get the rumors spread. You know, kids or whatever, you know, maybe they sacrificed a dog or something, you know, and that's where all this, yeah. that's where all this starts and comes from. Like at the Presidio, for instance, you know, all, all, the, all the writing, you know, up on like, the, like up there by the Golden Gate Bridge where the Coast Guard installments were and all that and all that satanic writing and stuff on, on the walls. I mean, I, I guess mm -hmm. that's what it takes. And then the rumors start going and then it just starts snowballing from there. Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, the, I can still remember that. It was active here in Europe also, the so-called satanic panic that happened in the 80s and all these sort of people uh, confessing to having been victims and, you know, these sort of staged hypnot hypnotism sessions. And it's like so cheesy and pathetic and tragic in a way because these people are obviously unhappy and, and some of them are actually psychotic but there was no evidence found of any so-called satanic crime so uh, i think that debunking or uh, you know exposure of fraudulent behavior uh, still lingers on and the police of course know this and can reference that material so mm -hmm. i'm i'm not uh, whenever i hear people talking about that or trying to provoke some kind of you know thing about I just uh, shrug my shoulders and leave. You know, there's really mm -hmm. no point. <laughs> and he was a family man, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he had um, uh, two daughters and one son. Uh, the first daughter uh, was born in the late uh, 50s, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. The second one in uh, the mid-60s. And the final kid, uh, the son, Xerxes, uh, was born in 1993. And that's the last time... I uh, I met them. That was when Blanche was pregnant with the Xerxes in in 1993. What kind of person was he when he was away from the church? Yeah, he. Um, first of all, I, I'm not sure if he ever was away. What maybe maybe you're meaning this kind of flamboyant, uh, extroverted uh, right. public life or whatever with his family, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, very very uh, funny, you know, warm and generous. Uh, and that sort of perhaps goes against like the public image, but he really was. And it was a, uh, an amazing thing to be in his presence in that sense, because uh, I always had the feeling, you know, a little bit surprised at all the times I, I was there. It's like, you know, uh, it's so cool that I'm here. 
obviously I'm bringing something to the table, but I couldn't figure out what it was at the time, you know. But we like to talk about things that we had in common, uh, our love for film, for instance. And I, at this time, I was only, you know, 20-something little weird guy from Sweden. But mm -hmm. I had spent my entire <laughs> youth uh, that far watching movies, and specifically American, you know, film noir and gangster movies and old Hollywood movies and, and trashy movies. And it's just, you know... Um, what I loved. So we could talk a lot about those things. And then, of course, I had found uh, earlier that kind of resonance with his writings and I could relate to the topics. And I was parallel to this studying, you know, Crowley and all other older occult stuff. So there were many frames of reference, but it was very seldom that the talk was strictly about the occult or the arcane or the magical or even about you know satan or, or or satanism it was mostly about culture and that kind of you know weird films weird people weird writers so i felt that he was very generous uh, as a person uh, he shared his time and his space with young people at this time um and my premise with with the film that later became the book was that he did this to secure a different kind of legacy not like the official legacy that came with his own books and and his own statements and 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 these things but also uh, you know and his kids obviously are an, uh, they're another kind of legacy but i think he wanted to secure uh, some kind of extra legacy uh, in people that he found had that resonance and preferably people who, who, were, who were young in a way like like myself but there were also people of other you know uh, ages there but they all also they all, all took this on this experience of having been there and, and getting to know him uh, and and um, uh, manifested the flowers of those seed in a way in, in different ways like in publishing uh, other writers um, music basically culture, taking his philosophy on uh, into greater culture. Well, he wasn't one of these people that, I mean, as a friend that, let's say you were a different religion than he was, he wasn't real pushy about the religion, was he? Not at all. And also, the philosophy of Satanism is uh, really very, very individualistic and non-sectarian non in a way. Uh, LaVey was raised as a secular uh, Jew, and there were people of all persuasions and, you know, races and obviously genders and, and things like that. There was a lot of tolerance uh, in, in the Church of Satan, and I should say still is, actually perhaps maybe even more so now. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if someone had come uh, as a member of the Church of Satan in the late 60s or whenever, you know, when it was really an attractive and a, a public presence thing and uh, that person had been a devout Cath catholic for instance mm -hmm. uh, yet feeling this attraction to the dark forces or interested in these kinds of rituals lave would have said you know fine you're absolutely welcome don't um, proselytize or you know <laughs> try to make some, some kind of missionary work right. but but respect the rules and everybody's welcome so he was he was actually a very tolerant man and he would be a fine example of the person who says um i'm um intolerant towards intolerance Mm -hmm. you know, in, in a true sort of libertarian uh, fashion. And and speaking of that old um, uh, documentary, uh, Satanist from 1969, there's mm -hmm. a wonderful old lady, I think she's some kind of Danish princess or something, uh, who was an active member in the Church of Satan these those first years. And she says something along those lines, you know, uh, that I'm intolerant against intolerance. And I think that sort of sums up not only what it was like then, but it has remained. It's a spirit, spirit of, of freedom and tolerance. And, and um, you're welcome as long as you adhere to, to the few rules that exist, you know. It makes me think of Wicca, because for the longest time, Wicca had a bad rap, too. You know, and yeah, now I mean, it's all about the earth and all this and now. But for the longest time, when you thought of Wicca, you thought of the, pretty much the same thing, you know, that they were out doing circles and, and taking animals and drinking blood. Yeah. Exactly. It's exactly the same. And let's just call it a human group dynamics that has a tendency to evolve into bullying. And, and it's when, you know, you have one outsider, like think of a school class, for instance, you have the nerd or the, the, the special person or the simply the outsider. That mm -hmm. person will be ostracized either because he or she is not 
t actively taking part of what the community is doing or the herd, whatever, uh, or they are immediately ostracizing uh, that person because um, because he or she is different. And mm -hmm. that goes on a larger scale also, as we can see, it's very easy for a greater culture, like for instance, with a dominant rule to single out one group, whether it's ethnic or gender-based or, or uh, opinion-based and say that, uh, these are barbarians and these are scum and, and you know all these derogatory terms and it can turn into well the the the, the actual um extension of the logic is always some kind of lynching you know whether actual physical or just uh, you know ostracizing and criminalizing certain elements uh unfortunately that seems to be part of the human uh, dynamic you know when you have uh, a person who feels weak needs to stand on someone else to feel strong. Uh, and I don't think, unfortunately, that there's anything we can do about it except for, you know, through education and an encouragement of self-individuation. Because when you're an individuated person who knows uh, what you want to do in life and you're happy to do it, and that in itself empowers you to do it, then you have no time or energy for that bullshit. Mm -hmm. because that's essentially what it is and mm -hmm. if you can avoid masses of people uh, you probably should <laughs> because nothing right, right. really nothing good comes out of them right 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 question in the chat room is you may not know this but what about his relationship with kenneth and kenneth anger right well that was a beautiful beautiful and sweet relationship uh, of a friendship nature uh, that uh, i had the good fortune well, that's another long story. So let's begin in the beginning. Sure. On that first trip in 1989, uh, I was a film student at Stockholm University. I had written my thesis about uh, Alistair Crowley's uh, influence in Kenneth Anger's work. So, and I had some some uh, contacts that I wanted to sort of explore in California when I went to meet LaVey, but I also knew that they were friends and I told him about that. So uh, on one of the evenings, um, Lave told me as I was leaving um, uh, that morning that I have just been on the phone with Kenneth Anger. He says that you're welcome to visit him in Hollywood when you get down there to LA. So that was another kind of mind blower thing that where this great meeting led to another great meeting that led to another, I wouldn't say friendship, but I've been an acquaintance of Anger's since then, since 1989. And in 2019, I made a documentary film also about him. Um, and some snippets, some scenes from, from those sessions are also in my documentary about LaVey, where he talks, where Anger talks about LaVey specifically. And they became friends in the early 60s. Anger moved to uh, California, to San Francisco in the mid 60s. And Anger became a member of uh, the thing that existed before the Church of Satan, which was called the Magic Circle. Anger was very much a Thelemite, a, a Crowleyan. Uh, student, student of Alistair Crowley and his Thelema uh, philosophy and magical system. So Anger brought that to the table. Uh, LaVey was very interested in that, but of course had his own take on, on everything. Mm -hmm. And over, the, over time, there were even periods when Anger lived in the Black House, uh, even as late as um, uh, late 80s and sometime during the, the 90s also. So they were friends since you know, mid 60s. And mm -hmm. uh, they also loved old films. Of course, Anger wrote, you know, the Hollywood Babylon books and right. uh, these sort of gossipy volumes uh, really about the dark side of of um, Tinseltown or Hollywood culture. And LaVey mm -hmm. loved that kind of stuff, you know, so they were good friends. This is interesting. This is all interesting to me because like I said, you know, I grew up Catholic and so, of course, we have our, our views of what Satanism, what Satanism is. So when you hear about stuff, again, like you say, when you hear about stuff like the Church of Satan, right away the, you know, right, right, right away the spider sense goes off and all that. But to hear it from you and, and how you looked at it, it, it makes it all a lot different. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have no response to that. I, I absolutely understand that. And and what I've done in uh, with this book is basically uh, the premise for it was that you know what the hell happened? Why did I feel so energized and sort of pepped? And why do I? Why does it still affect me in this kind of positive way? And you know, the psychological um, 
dynamic of that is pretty simple. You know, it's a young person who finds a mentor in a way who is supportive and inspiring and, and uh, can sort of... Um, uh, fill the young person with a sense of belonging, but also a sense of self, a sense of self-empowerment and a direction, a trajectory. And, and that's really meaningful for young people. And that's exactly what it was for me. So um, then I was curious about the same era, the people who were there, did they feel the same thing? You know, the friends, other friends, whether young or old, did they feel the same thing when they left in the early uh, hours of the morning that, you know, he had imparted something special to them uh, mm -hmm. to take on or to to be a fertile soil for, in a way. And it turned out that, that uh, what I had felt, my suspicion, turned out uh, correct. Most of them felt exactly the same thing. It was like, wow, it's like being, you know, um, knocked over the head with, with uh, like a boost of inspiration. And he also imparted different things for different people, you know. Uh, the evenings were basically set up in the same way. You know, you uh, met, you had a drink at the house, we went out to dinner and then came back to the house where he entertained uh, in his kitchen. He had this beautiful park of, of uh, synthesizers and he played music, you know, old forgotten tunes, um, the great American song, songbook or the dark side of it, like these really forgotten weird uh, tunes. And he was very much like, a, uh, you know, Chico Marx, the, the oh. piano Marx brother, a real funny uh, show character who played dramatically, really uh, amplified whatever he was playing with his entire body in a way. Um, so in that sense, and then of course you watched movies and talked and talked and talked. There might also be other people popping in uh, in the middle of the night. You know, these were night night people, and and it was uh, so you know really fascinating. So anyway, my premise turned out to be correct that he had imparted. Um, could be in conversation or the mm -hmm. films that he had selected for the evening or, or even the music that he played. Uh, these were things that sort of, boom, went up like flares much, much later. They, I still get sort of uh, little bursts of inspiration and connections, like joining the dots much, much, much later, saying mm -hmm. that this is what this was about. And, mm -hmm. and for me specifically, what I remember, he really imparted the importance of a writer the writer Ben Hecht, who was one of the most famous script writers of Hollywood during the 30s and, and 40s. And uh, he read to me, took books from the shelf and read to me from Ben Hecht books, you know. And at the time, I just found it extremely cool, but I didn't get it until much later, you know, why it was cool, <laughs> you know, because I had the time and, you know, energy to to explore the works of Ben Hecht, for instance. And, and I think that he saw that I'm interested in writing. I'm interested in movies. Uh, let's infuse this guy with someone who was like a movie genius, a genius writer into this young uh, aspiring author in a way. And I'm so happy and pleased. I even have here in my study on the wall a framed uh, check from David Zelsnick to Ben Hecht that I got on uh, A Books, I think. You know, it's amazing. Little Talisman. That's cool. Yeah. What did your family think when when you told them you were involved with with him? <laughs> well, the I I grew up in a, an extremely uh, secular family, and it was all about culture and uh, literature and art and stuff like that. So I was already on my own trajectory, uh, delving into weirdness delving into outsider art, experimental art, weird wow. literature. So they already knew that. Uh, they liked the fact, because I had already been a networking person uh, before this, running my own fan scenes that had to do with rock and roll music and, and things like that. And I went to uh, the UK to interview bands. And, and um, so my behavior was already well known and gradually i became more and more interested in in the occult and also in occulture you know cultural people dealing with occult stuff or vice versa uh, they found it only a controversial and problematic not so much when i told them about you know what i was doing and how great it was but mm -hmm. i was very uh, honest about it and public about it and of course at this time it was like whoa is this kid going over to the states meeting Anton LaVey so of course there were journalists there and I was a little bit naive in a way there were some right. stories that in themselves were great 
you know, but these were major newspapers in Sweden. And the repercussions was like, like I got like death threats on the phone and stuff like that. And of course, for my parents to see that, you know, I'm some kind of satanic messenger, which I was not, you know, <laughs> in, in Stockholm, it's like it's, maybe they were a little bit embarrassed uh, right. in terms of their own, you know, friends and stuff, but it never amounted to, to anything. I was already doomed to be a weirdo, and I'm, I still am. <laughs> um, you talk about you know him playing music and all this. What were the masses like? I mean, were were there actual masses where people would go just just like regular church people, or how did that work? Uh, not at this time. That that ended basically in the mid seventies. Uh, the first phase, the first decade, was all about uh, amplifying the energy that was uh, also summed up in the two books, uh, the Satanic Bible and the satanic rituals um, that, that came out in 1969 and then the rituals, I think, in 1972 or something like that. And at that time, uh, the Church of Satan was a public thing. You know, it was an advertised thing and you could go to these things. And I don't know, maybe at some point there were simply too many people who wanted to go because the house wasn't that super great. And uh -huh. then they expanded. Um, and turned uh, the activities into local, I guess, lodges in a way. They were called grottos. Mm -hmm. um, so they were uh, regional activity locally all over the U.S. Um, and they they performed things like, um, you know, the Black Mass as uh, written about in, in these two books. Mm -hmm. uh, but it ended when he sort of retracted to uh, practice what he preached, meaning it was time for him to indulge more in the things that he enjoyed after having spent a decade or more, um, I don't know, preaching in a way, or, or at least showing by proxy and example uh, what it's all about and being on these endless amounts of talk shows and, mm -hmm. and radio, TV, magazines. And so he, I think he felt that, well, now I've done my part in terms of this extroverted things. I'm going to retract a little bit and enjoy myself and all the things that I really uh, love. Mm -hmm. So at that point, this thing with having masses at the uh, black house uh, was over there was still activity with i would say you know hardcore people hardcore members uh, in their ritual chamber but it the entire uh, black house became more and more and more uh, a home of course but also a repository for his own uh, existential and magical energy and that i think was a, a wise idea because you can lose all your energy if you are you know as it's called, to be if you're there for other people all the time, especially if you have to explain things, that's not good. So mm -hmm. uh, there were no real um, activities in that sense that I think that you're referring to, like regular masses and things like that. There were regular Friday masses uh, during the first years of the Church of Satan. And funnily enough, I was on uh, Coast to Coast radio uh, some weeks ago, and uh, one of the callers... Um, was an old lady. Was she was over eight years old, and she had been one of these uh, early on members of the Church of Satan, and had gone to these uh, Friday masses. And she said that it was so wonderful to you know this resurgence that's happening that we're talking about him. But also she she said that those were the happiest years of her life, and she enjoyed it so much to be in that tiny ritual chamber in that t little Victorian house on California Street. And it was so amazing to hear that. And afterwards, when they were done after a night of, of uh, uh, ritual and hanging out, they all went out together to an uh, all-night diner and had breakfast in the morning. Wonderful. It's, it's, it's like I said, it's very interesting to me. Did he, because uh, he, you know, he was always doing PR stuff, like you say. Did he find it distressing when the other rumors would start surfacing about what he was doing? Yeah, absolutely. But that, you know, again, th there are prices you have to pay for everything, you mm -hmm. know, and if you, if you, um, I'm not calling it karma or anything like that. But basically, if you want a certain kind of success, celebrity and public presence, you have to go down certain routes. And if you go down those routes, you will have a great deal of exposure. Exposure okay. can be good. Exposure can also be bad in the sense that, you know, wanted or desired exposure is usually great, but unwanted <laughs> desire is usually not so great. So and I think that th this is a limit to 
how much a person can keep up this facade of uh, uh, what do you call it? keeping up the appearances in a way. Oh. I'm not saying he did that. He he was smarter. He basically retracted and went into his own bubble and generated new energy for new projects, which was basically taking care of the Church of Satan, administration, his own writing, and enjoying life, meaning playing music, watching movies, and, you know, extending his uh, social life and, you know, just leading a good life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to the Satanic Bible, how long did it take for him to write that? I, uh, it's it's funny that you ask that because I have this uh, what I call an uh, occultural journal uh, mm-hmm. called the Fenris Wolf. It's a uh, more or less regular thing, and it's now like a book form that I began in the late uh, '80s, and that was one of the projects that uh, I felt a great support from. Uh, LaVey and also Blanche Barton, his partner, because uh, they granted me per- permission to republish some of his uh, essays from their membership uh, newsletter called the Cloven Hoof, for instance. And that was amazing. Um, but the reason why I'm talking about that is that in the 10th issue of the Fenris Wolf, which is actually the most recent one, um, there's a great piece that tells the retrospective history uh, about the church of, uh, no, about the Satanic Bible. Um, uh, Pagan Adramia, who's the high priestess of the Church of Satan, uh, really delved into this kind of uh, detective work, you know, roaming through the archives and in connecting all the dots in how the book was made and mm-hmm. and uh, it's very interesting so i cannot recall exactly how long it took for him but it was a collaboration you know in part it came from him but it in part it also came from uh, an agent that eventually got a publisher saying that this is so amazing and radical and uh, it packs such a punch uh, because of the fact that he had had this incredible media exposure since 1966. And the book mm-hmm. didn't come out until 1969. So mm-hmm. I think the agent and other people around him, including himself, also said, whoa, this re- we should really you know, collect some kind of writing here and explain what this is really all about to have an even uh, further outreach. So I would say that, you know, it took years if you go from that idea and concept stage to actually writing it, anthologizing material, and then editing. You know, it's, it can be a very slow process. But I think that maybe the idea or the seed for that uh, popped up uh, about, I would say, about a year after uh, the Church of Satan had been founded and, had mm-hmm. sort of, you know, basically exploded in terms of attention. Do you think that, you know, with, even with your book and your documentary, that the reputation of the Church of Satan is ever going to be, um, I'm not going to say clean or decent, but you know what I mean, to be away from, from the other stuff that people think it is? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's a tricky question because uh, I'm not uh, like uh, an official spokesperson. I have many friends in the Church of Satan uh, and I respect them greatly and I think they're doing a great job. But I, I don't know if it it's there uh <laughs> if it's if it would be good for them to be like completely clean and sanitized because <laughs> in a way you know the the lure and the romance and the the uh, attraction lies in that it's it, it is a little bit dangerous however mm-hmm. it is also clearly stated that it's not dangerous in any way that is actually dangerous it's only dangerous because it has the potential of empowering the individual to truly find him or herself and then just roll with it you know as they say in many different i guess many uh, eastern philosophies you know to trust the river or go with the flow these things but you can't really do that until you feel safe and secure in yourself that you know uh, who you are and what you want to do in life then you know some kind of river will appear that you can trust or a flow appears Mm -hmm. um and and I think the danger uh, inherent in a philosophy like Lavey's and also then in the organization like the Church of Satan, the, the only danger inherent there is the fact that it, it can change your life. Mm-hmm. It can take you away from a trajectory that has been, uh, in a way, programmed for you. And you can then be uncertain whether you want to go the safe route or whether you want to go the adventurous route. The Satanist will most likely choose the adventurous route because it is an exploration, it's an adventure, it's a lot of pleasure, there's a lot of Nietzschean 
ecstasy in a way in overcoming the hurdles and and hindrances of life it makes you stronger in a way all of these sort of philosophical cliches but they're also true in the sense that if you go down the safe route and perhaps have this as a kind of a hobby that no one knows about that's mm -hmm. fair and fine but uh, it's also about encouraging uh, a great love of life you know, to really feel ecstatic about every moment and to enjoy life, you know, the pleasure together with other people or alone or, or you know, just whatever you want to do in that sense. So that's the danger of the philosophy and, and of the organization. But beyond that, there's really nothing uh, dangerous at all unless you as a bystander or an onlooker are bigoted or have been brought up in a very extreme fundamentalist religious, you know, whether it's monotheism or, or whatever. So you're imbued with your own prejudice against, then it can be dangerous because you will never understand what these people are doing, nor you know, why they're so happy. Right, right, right. And like you said earlier, when, when I think of this, I think of, like you say, American Horror Story and even Eyes Wide Shut, that movie. Right. That's yeah. what comes to mind right away. You know, and it's it's hard to beat a rap like that because once that once that snowball starts going, it's hard to explain to people that well, it depends on the person. You know, sure there's some yeah. bad eggs, but all in all, that was different. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just the name of the game, you know, and and uh, one should never look away also from the fact that it was never the symbol of Satan. It's not designed or used to achieve some kind of cuddly lovable uh mainstream presence it's it's a philosophy that attracts outsiders and people who don't feel an affinity with a collective uh, mm -hmm. and that said uh, even if you go down some other route you might become you know um a specialist in some field which is not necessarily satanic or even philosophical or religiously tainted but just where you're a specialist and people will look on you with suspicion because you know more than they do you know and and uh, whether you're a chess master or someone dealing with quantum physics on such a high level that that people simply won't understand what you're talking about i think those people will feel an affinity with the philosophy of satanism uh, you know, whether they're religious or not, it doesn't matter. This thing where you feel special from childhood and onwards, and uh, in a way can sound paradoxical, where, you know, individualists join a group or uh, feel affinity with a collective of like-minded souls, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, paradoxical. It could just be what you call... Uh, find the others this is a great you know safety in knowing that there are other weirdos out there and if i want to talk to them i could just go over there but i can also stay here and be quite content with that so i think that um uh, this thing where the anti-satanic pops up in mainstream culture i don't mm -hmm. think it really bothers people uh with a satanic band because it is the name of the game and in a way it only reinforces their own conviction and their own strength in feeling that they're on the right path because if the mainstream doesn't like what i do then i know i'm doing something right right right, right. it's a rebellious streak if you were going to take Anton LaVey and introduce him to your family, how, how would you do it? Uh, I would uh, introduce him to, uh, as my friend mm -hmm. uh, and as an incredible artist in the sense, you know, he was mainly a musician, but he was a skilled, you know, uh, painter and, and uh, uh, writer and, and uh, many other things also. But I would present him as a kind of a uh, master musician with a very colorful uh, life and career in the circus and sideshow, working with big cats, also taming uh, lions and tigers. He even had a pet lion in his house in San Francisco before he was banned. <laughs> Maybe for understandable reasons. I don't know. Uh, but he was just such a special person and he knew it and he also wanted to exploit it. So if I took Anton LaVey home to my parents uh, in a hypothetical <laughs> situation, I would. Uh, Probably they would would know who he was, but I would introduce him as my great friend, and and in a way, you know, now retrospectively, as some kind of mentor, um, mm -hmm. and uh, a great musician and film lover. That's how I would uh, 
uh, introduce him. What's one of your fondest memories of him? Uh, I would probably say, you know, watching him play music because uh, it was so much fun. It was never like, you know, uh, highfalutin and everybody stand in order and listen attentively like some kind of, you know, Stradivarius or or, uh, Paganini playing. It was just like literally like Chico Marx. Uh, I, I usually call it like a mix between Chico Marx and um, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a, an old film with uh, John Barrymore called Svengali, where he's this, this kind of Svengali person who's a music teacher for uh, young girls. <laughs> you know, uh, But that kind of look and this stern, dramatic, almost like uh, Dracula presence mixed with Chico Marx. It's amazing. And he was just hammering away and playing these weird medleys. Um, and I asked him, you know, can you play something Scandinavian? And he just hammered out some tune. Um, and I, I couldn't, you know, for the world of me, you know, how could he remember these things? I mean, some people are mu- very musically skilled, so they can. And and it turned out to be later on, because I recorded it, uh, some old Danish Christmas song. You know, where the hell did he hear that in the first place? Right. Just so so those things, because he was very, uh, I love the word uh, gleeful. You know, mm-hmm. he was very gleeful, mischievous when he was playing, often turning his head and looking at us and seeking eye contact and smiling. And, you know, it's just uh, a whole lot of fun. So I would say uh, the, the, that privilege of have, having, you know, listened to him and watched him perform music, that's a very dear memory because um, it's something that no one else can recreate. You can find great conversations with other people. Other people may have other specialities that are great, but he that was something so unique to him, uh, seeing magic uh, um, and, and music so merged. You know, that playing music was uh, in great part uh, his magical system. That's how we um, experienced catharsis of negative emotions, how we mm-hmm. encouraged uh, positive emotions and even, you know, sexual energy. It was all there in the music. It was That was his world, his universe. And through that universe, he sent out little beams of what he wanted to achieve or just, you know, enjoyment in the in the moment. So was, th- those moments were fantastic. Yeah, you brought up Svengali, okay? And a lot of the time when people think of him, that's what they think of, that he, he was this Bengali-like character, but he wasn't. I wouldn't say so, because he never, he, you know, there was never like, now you have to do this to understand this occult aspect of this or that. Yeah, that that's, that's that's just some, you know, old Hollywood BS. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he was just like really interested in, in uh, what I was planning ahead for, you know, whether it was records or, or other books or things like that. And, you know, again, I told you, he generously granted me permission to, to reprint some of his essays in The Fenris Wolf, which mm-hmm. made The Fenris Wolf very interesting. Um, and it felt great because it also contextual my own work in a way I was so young that I didn't understand even what that meant you know contextualizing my work but what I had been doing with the musical fanzines I continued doing with the occultural fanzine that turned into a book that is now a series of books and and has become you know many uh, you know offshoots and side projects that it's basically the same thing I contact people that I enjoy and that i'm inspired by and i take them into my world as they take me into their world and mm-hmm. then i sort of write their if not story then at least a, a portion of the story and i give it out to to other people essentially a journalistic kind of work but it's also highly rewarding for me on a very personal level because these mm-hmm. are people that i i love and admire and to be in their presence is amazing and uh, i hope also that for them it's interesting to have me there as um, you know um, conversationalist in a way or a documentor uh, is that the word yeah someone who documents uh, what they're up to at, at that mm-hmm. specific moment so i see myself like that it's a part journalism part my own experience uh, part also history writing um, because this lavey book could not have been um, written the way it is by anyone else you know it's, it's mm-hmm. just like uh, i'm a great uh, believer in uh, diaries <laughs> writing meticulous diaries that's it that's been invaluable in this process and and uh i carry on doing exactly the same thing just writing more and more books 
of uh, with or without other weird people. Right, right, right. How hard was it to sell the idea to a publisher? Uh, that was uh, super easy. Uh, and the thing is that uh, because I had already written um, one book, I think, for that publisher, and I've since written uh, another one. Um, so that wasn't too difficult because it's not a straightforward biography, you mm -hmm. know, and it's not like a, a PR book for him. Uh, it's based on my own experience uh, where the first, uh, I think, five or six chapters are my own memories and contextualizations of why I was there and what we did together and, and what my experiences were. And mm -hmm. then uh, I interviewed um, a great number of people who were there at about the same time, meaning the last decade of LaVey's life. So their stories are as personal as uh, my story is mm -hmm. and but it gives a different kind of perspective because they are uh, different people and and this uh, Blanche Barton is in there of course uh, Peter Gilmore and Pegna Dramia from the Church of Satan and Xerxes uh, the son that's his first ever interview about what it was like those first years growing up with his dad and what happened afterwards and and uh, then you know many friends who were active in collaborating with LaVey and so it, it paints a picture that is not entirely mine um i've put it together and edited it together and i contextualize it in those uh, first chapters of the book and then uh, it's become well we can call it a mosaic mm -hmm. it's it's a mosaic of impressions and memories about this extremely uh, uh, great person you know great american person what do you think lemay would think of your book well, <laughs> I, I'm sure he would be uh, very happy about it in the sense that uh, it's about him. <laughs> That's the first, you know, and, and uh, it's a serious attempt at, uh, like I said, contextualizing him. And, and um, there's a bit of biography in there that's uh, written differently than other biographies uh, that there are. Um, and... Uh, so I think he would like it from an egotistical point of view. And I also hope and think that he would be uh, touched and, and moved by the fact that um, in part, it's my own story. And that story is filled with love and appreciation and, and uh, gratitude from me towards him. Uh, and the same thing comes through in all of these other voices there also, um, because... Uh, all of those people had great times too uh, at the Black House. Uh, so I think actually he would like the book a lot. I hope so. Have you got any feedback from other members of the church? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the, the people who uh, are in the book that I interviewed, uh, uh -huh. that, that was mainly for uh, the film that came out in 2019. So they had already like watched the movie and had I had feedback on that. But that's the, the problem or <laughs> the challenge of making films is that you can only put so much into it. You, you have to kill so many darlings. And then that's why I decided to make the book. You know, I have so much good material here. I cannot let that be on, as you call it, the cutting room floor. It has mm -hmm. to be edited together text, textually. And, and so in that sense, um, those people were happy about the film. They were even more happy, uh, even happier about the fact that they could, you know, the entire interviews were in the book. Um, of course, they're edited, but they're, you know, um, a lot longer and a lot more substantial also than mm -hmm. in the film. So, and in terms of, there are some other people who... Uh, who had met LaVey also, they, they liked the book a lot. And I think for people who are younger, who weren't there, but of course who mythologize uh, the man and the era and perhaps the you know uh, Church of Satan also, for them I think it's an eye-opener because um, it's really uh, first-hand accounts. It's history writing in that sense that it's first-hand accounts uh, that are presented... Um, I'm bad with maths, but he died in 97. So he's been gone for a while. Let's call it that. He's been gone for a while. Uh, and um, that makes it uh, valuable, I think, for people who uh, 
have read his books, have been feeling the inspiration by collecting all this stuff and reading and studying. But here suddenly is something from literally, that's why I called it, into the right. devil's den. So from the devil's den, you know, you could have a little peek what it was like and what, what people were doing. And it was uh, uh, fun based and it was nice and it was friendly and warm and uh, not much talk about the like the technical aspects of satanic occultism or anything like that but it was just uh very culture based based on uh, movies and music and authors and other things that he wanted very much i i believe now to impart to these people who were present and we in our turn have sort of moved it um uh, not only paid it back but also paid it forward to to a new generation in a way absolutely what's next for you uh i have finished another book also for inner traditions it's called Ooh. source magic and it's coming out uh, next year uh and it's basically an anthology of uh, essays and lectures and articles that i've written about my favorite topic <laughs> which is this thing called occulture it's mm -hmm. the kind of colorful gray area where uh, art meets the occult or the occult seeps into uh, cultural expressions and i i love to be that kind of uh, anthropological detective uh seeing who knew whom and how did that affect that uh phenomenon or um basically because uh, the occult is a difficult uh, term but for me it has more and more come to mean what grows underneath the surface just like you know every flower that comes up or shrub or tree or right. um, you know begins on the seed level and that's occult it's hidden it's in the dark you know but that's really where the most the strongest vitality is isn't it because what happens there is the foundation of what comes up and takes in the sun and grows and becomes healthy and affects people with beauty. But it always begins in the dark. And it's not evil. It's just very dark, <laughs> dark and cold and, and, you know, wet or whatever. And, right. and uh, it's that's the, the really the origin of, of uh, life, whether, you know, actually or symbolically. And I love that analogy when I'm looking at uh, different cultural expressions and sort of weird artists and, and, you know, where does it all come from? You know, where do ideas come from? Where is that, um, you know, uh, the origin, the source? How can people find you, sir? Uh, they, I'm all over the place, but the best gateway is is my own website. It's it's uh, carlabrahamson.com. Carl with a C, Abrahamson with two S's, and then .com. So it's easy. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I learned so much about this. And, you know, it's always something, like I said, you see on TV and you never quite get the gist of what actually went on and stuff like that. So I want to thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be here. And uh, I'm sure we'll meet again in the future. Absolutely. I'd like to get you back on at a later date when, when you get your next yeah, yeah. stuff on. Okay. Absolutely. All thank right, you so very much. Thank bye you. Bye. Have a good rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, guys. I learned a lot, uh, you know, controversial, but I mean, it is what it is. And, uh, one man's view. So that's great. You know, I have no, nothing against any of that. I want to thank him for coming. And I want to thank you guys for coming because we did come on at noon today. And, you know, we usually don't come on at noon, but here we are, right? Uh, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, there's a little guy down there, a little ghost down there with the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on and the uh, magnifying glass. Please subscribe. We have over 250 videos sitting there that you can check out. On Monday, Michael Breen is going to be with us, and he is a travel writer, but he not only writes about, like, exotic places, he also writes about the paranormal, which being UFOs, ghosties, whatever else. So he's going to be with us, high strangeness. He's going to be with us on Monday at 6.30, our usual time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Sunday, we'll be back at 6 p.m., even though it's Easter. We want to continue with um, the Mojave incident, and we're going to be doing that. And so that'll be 6 p.m. on Sunday. And I want to thank everybody for coming. Like I said, I really appreciate it. If you want to check us out, we're at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or if you want to check the paranormal group out, that's CaliforniaHaunts.org. As I said earlier in the show, uh, California Haunts is its not quite a nonprofit, but it, uh, we don't ask for money to do any paranormal investigating or anything like that. So uh, everything comes out of my pocket. So if something breaks, you know, machines, computers, whatever, you know, equipment for the team, I have to pay for it, you know, our, our, our internet service, all that good stuff. If you could help me out a little bit, keep the show on the air, that would be great. And that would be at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or you could uh, 
If you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts and do it that way. I'd really appreciate it. You know, I, I, I'm a journalist, photojournalist by trade, and this is what I do, and I love to do this. I'm retired. But this is my gig. So if you could help me out, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. So uh, that would be great. You know, get the word out about our show. I think we've got a nice little show here, and uh, YouTube shows us no love. So the sooner, you know, we can get the word out, the easier. Again, thank you very much, and be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't done so already, and look us up at California Haunts on YouTube. If you can't find us there, the easiest way to get to the YouTube page is from CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Anyway, I want to thank you guys, and I will see you Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Bye-bye. <laughs>